1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre D'Alancer. It's just over a decade since Egypt's revolution that started with a wave of protest in Cairo's Tahrir Square and formed part of what we now refer to as the Arab Spring. While international media attention has followed the post-revolutionary politics of Egypt and the region, we have paid less attention to the subtle but powerful developments in Egyptian society. How have the people of Cairo lived in and interpret their realities? How have artists and writers responded personally and artistically to the various stages of the political transformation? Those are the questions that drive a new book, Creating Spaces of Hope, Young Artists and the New Imagination in Egypt by Caroline Seymour-John. Caroline is an Associate Professor of Comparative Literature and Arabic Translation at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and I'm very happy that she joins me now to discuss her book. Caroline, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here, Pierre.
1: Thank you so much for joining me, Caroline. Well, your book is an incredibly rich in detail and detailed and very, very subtle as well, account of a range of artistic practices that have been emerging in Cairo over the last ten years. But before we get into any of those details, I'd like to ask you about your own trajectory and how you how you came to be in Cairo, how you came in contact with all those artists and
0: Well, um actually I've been traveling to Cairo and spending time in the city for quite a while now, um, initially went in 1987 to learn Arabic um, I uh, or to to learn advanced Arabic. I had already done a degree in, in, in Arabic at the university. And um, even in those early days in the late 80s, um, I started to get interested in artists and creators. Mm-hmm. Um, I had friends who took me to a variety of studios and introduced me to various kinds of artists, sculptors, and painters, and so on. But my focus in the early days that I spent in Cairo in the early 1990s was research on writers, on women writers. I did a book called Cultural Criticism in Egyptian Women's Writing, which focused on Um, a group of women who started publishing and became rather well-published during the 1970s. And so I looked at their novels and their short stories with sort of a two-pronged approach. I tried to look at um, aesthetic innovations that they were making, literary innovations, along with um, critiques, social and political critiques Mm -hmm. that they were making as well. And so some of the literary innovations I was looking at were things like how um, writers uh, moved between colloquial language and the formal literary Arabic. Um, I I looked at how they included um, women's language, popular expressions, Mm -hmm. and a sort of uh, very colloquial sort of language uh, and the topics that women talk about. I looked at how they used intertextuality in various ways, drawing on the Quran or various other texts to talk about women's lives um, and to talk about the way that the ways that women fit into society and politics mm-hmm. in Egypt. During that period when I was doing research on writers, I spent a lot of time in Central Cairo, um, in the area not far from Tahrir Square and Talat Harb Square, where there are many cafes that artists and writers hang out in. Um, There's an atelier there. There are places uh, people go to in the evenings, um, studios. And as I sort of kind of hung out in that world, getting to know people and doing interviews and arranging interviews, I met. Many artists, many studio artists, um, and it was very clear to me that the world of artists and writers was very intertwined in the city. Yeah. And I was very fortunate to to make some very good friends, actually, um, in that circle of people, um, and uh, go to many different kinds of exhibits and visit artists and studios. And although I never, at that time in the early 1990s, I never really thought about focusing on artists. I maintained my interest and my contacts and when the revolution happened, um, it became very clear to me that artists, whether we're talking studio artists, writers, musicians, um, street or public artists, they were doing some of the most interesting um, creative production Mm. during that period, uh, around 2011 and the years after.
1: Mm. Fascinating. From my memory of, of working with European artists running up to 2011. Cairo was always seen from from London and from Europe as this kind of almost utopian yes. melting pot of yes. creativity and literature. You know the mm-hmm. kind of thing that we still associate maybe with Bohemian Paris, but, yes. but is no longer reproduced under the conditions of, conditions of neoliberal capitalism in the West. Right. So right. You, it's it's fascinating to to hear that you, you you had that experience. Yeah. Before that watershed watershed moment,
0: it's a very exciting part of the city because you know, despite the fact that, you know, there are economic problems and political problems in the city, people are just so active. Uh, I think yeah. the artists and intelligentsia are so active. Um, there's always something going on. So it, it, it's a very exciting, energizing kind of place. So I can understand yeah. why um, artists in, in Europe, artists and writers in Europe would see it that way.
1: I think this, this is this is fascinating. Because I think we'll, we'll come back to both the the benefits and the difficulties of that kind of framing, in the yes. <laughs> moment. But maybe it'll be worth worthwhile spending just just a minute um, giving a bit of a sketch of the the revolution and the political and the social situation in Cairo, and Egypt, from mm-hmm. two thousand and eleven on. I, I imagine most of our listeners will have the broad outline of January two thousand and eleven revolution, but it would be great if you could maybe begin to give us a flavour of how you see society has been responding to to the changes and how.
0: What what your
1: artists are living through?
0: Yes, well, of course, prior to the 2011 revolution, um, Hosni Mubarak had been the president of Egypt for 30 years, quote unquote, elected. Um, But yeah, there was no real democracy. There was no real democratic elections going on there, Um, and it was a it was a very repressive regime. Mm -hmm. Um, People were very frustrated. With lack of freedoms, um, with uh, restrictions on media, um, people, the economy was, you know, really quite bad, and people uh, were, you know, struggling to put to put food on the table. Although there were people who had become very wealthy due to sort of uh, sort of neoliberal capitalist changes in the city there, you know, the, the gap between the, the wealthy and the poor was getting larger and larger all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and there had been a number of, it, it wasn't that 2011 happened all of a sudden there had been a number of revolutionary um, episodes before that, including the Cafeya movement, which means enough. So um, the, the sort of background is a background of frustration and people being sort of fed up. Um, And when the 2011 revolution came, people, you know, they they came to Tahrir, they came to the squares around, um, Tahrir is the central square, of course, in in Cairo, but they came to other squares, people demonstrated in other towns and cities as well, um, and called for democracy. And what was so interesting about it was that it was a very diverse group of people that protested. Mm-hmm. It was men and women. It was wealthy and poor. It was educated and uneducated, seculars, liberals, fundamentalists, you name it. They were all in the square together. There, there was a period of time after 2011 um, when there was sort of a transitional period where the Supreme Council of Armed Forces took control. People thought that there was going to be democratic elections that would be held, And people were very excited about that, but ultimately disappointed in what happened, which was more or less a continuation of the Mubarak regime and then the installation of um, the current president, el-Sisi. So I would say, when you ask me what what people have lived through, I think I would say they lived through tremendous hope and joy about the possibility of um, increased democracy, at a different kind of society. Um, They've lived through the disappointment of of that not happening. Um, They recognize that what happened in Egypt politically, what's been happening is part of a larger geopolitical scene in which outside actors, including the U.S., contribute to the political situation there. Um, But I think what's amazed me perhaps more than anything else is that People think that the revolution was a good thing. Even people after the disappointments, um, they think that it was good for young people to have a taste of what it means to be able to say their minds, um, to have those moments in Tahrir Square, and to understand what political participation is. So I, I, I would say that people are still in some ways hopeful, although also frustrated with the current situation as well.
1: Yeah, and all of this plays itself out in, in the in the in the book and, and the case studies that you compose it around. And maybe we just start with a very broad overview of, of what it is that that you do in in the text. You have conducted what seemed to me incredibly in-depth uh both kind of anthropological and ethnographic studies of a series of artistic projects and individual artists, but also you've gone in great amount of depth and detail into the analysis of a range of artistic works. And what I really appreciate about your work is that you've brought together a kind of community art, dramatic project. You've brought together a couple of studio artists to writers and also engage with street art Mm -hmm. and together these things form an incredibly rich picture. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about your approach to, to the method and what's What's important about giving this amount of space to mm. the personal experiences of artists?
0: Well, i I am trained as an anthropologist, um so I've always sort of been taught to think about um, the context in which an individual mm. operates, um, the way that they've thought about their lives and their activities, their personal history. But I've also been a person who's always been interested in art as well. And so I've tried to bring um, those two things together. What's interesting, I think, in, you know, sort of traditionally in, in Western academia was that um, literary criticism and art criticism tended to be very removed from personal discussion of the artist, mm-hmm. him or herself. It was sort of a, the the idea of thinking about the artist was sort of an old fashioned way of or thinking about the artist's personal history was sort of an old fashioned way of approaching art and literature. Rather, um, the idea is to focus on um, the work itself, literary or artistic techniques um, and uh, interpretation in those terms. But because I'm trying to work in between anthropology and art or literary criticism, I try to kind of merge the perspectives. And I think it's very interesting because really, my my main goal is to educate Westerners about the richness of what's going on in the art world in Cairo and in the Middle East. Because I think, um, I, I, can't, I can't speak for Europe really, but in, in the U.S., I think people tend to be very ignorant about the Middle East. They, they don't know that there's this rich artistic and literary world. And there's a lot of stereotypical thinking about the region. So, My aim is to educate about that richness, but also to help people understand um, the humanity of the artistic creators as well, who they are as people, how they came to their work, um, what it means to them from a social, political, cultural perspective. And I would say that the literary and sort of artistic critical standards are a bit different in the U.S., um, or in, in, the Euro, in the West and in, in, the e- in Egypt, if I can generalize in those ways, in that in Egypt, in the Middle East, artists and writers who engage in relatively direct political or social or cultural critique, but also engage in aesthetic innovation, are very much valued and appreciated, whereas I think um, kind of more direct social political critique Mm-hmm. In in the West tends to be looked at as, as sort of a, a diminished value when it comes to literature.
1: Yeah, that's incredibly interesting, and I, I think that's a question that again pops up in the book time and time again. And I think we'll we'll experience this in a, in a moment when we start speaking about individual practices. But I wanted to ask you before that about your choice of framing that that seems to quite programmatically evade. Any preconceived Western notions of what it is what, what, what Arabic Middle Eastern art might might be, but also the very no Western notion of what political art is, so you, you just you just mentioned that there is a way in which in certain critical discourses, political artists not necessarily top priority. Right. But quite conversely, in um, European, maybe less so American um, art history discourse or contemporary art critique the political is king. Mm-hmm. So there is a tendency, which I've observed, maybe it's died down now, but in relationship to Egypt in particular, up to 2011, 12, the politics, the political potential of art was the only thing that the critics in Europe were interested in. Yes. Mm-hmm. But you you kind of eschew that mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. And I think one of them is just such that, that that continue to exist mm-hmm. within those practices. Mm-hmm. And second is just that, those kind of external frames are just not necessarily very productive. So mm-hmm. at the risk of having just put all these words in, in, in your mouth, I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit about what it is that critically avoiding this, the Western preconce- preconceived notions yeah. can produce for you.
0: Right. This is an idea that I started working with in my my book about Egyptian literary writers that, you know, Western scholars tend to want to, look at Middle Eastern creativity, whether it's literature or art, as a form of resistance, as a form of political Mm -hmm. resistance. Um, So, you know, so many books have been written about, say, for example, women's fiction that focus on the way that these writers critique um, gender norms, critique um, the way that marriage and family building happens in the middle east what it does to women's lives and these are these are important things however i think often when there's a focus on analysis of art or literature as um, resistance as a as, as a political statement we risk losing some of the most important things that the creator is trying to do which is the experimentation um, experimentation with language or in the case of the the work in this book i'm um, creating spaces of hope experimentation in in musical form artists with materials and ideas um, experimentation with in the case of the filmmaker Bassem usri for example experimentation with ideas of intercultural understanding and ex, uh, sort of existential issues of how do human beings really understand each mm-hmm. other so it I, I wanted to move away from a, an exclusive focus on the politics although the politics of the region are fascinating right mm-hmm. but it's not the only thing that artists are talking about and 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 I think they want to be recognized for the other things as well
1: well let's get right into it I think it's, it's, it's high time we, we talked about some examples and I was going to to try to introduce the choir project but um I've realized that it's a little bit too complicated for me to do much justice and that, that it became clear in some of our conversations earlier that the terminology really, really mattered. But
0: Yes. Well, the choir project um, was begun actually before, just before um, the 2011 revolution by Salam Yusri, who is a fascinating individual. He comes from uh, an artistic family. He is a, uh, a very accomplished painter as well as a musician. And he began um, the choir project in 2010. He he got a group of, he he basically put out a Facebook call for people to come and participate in this collaborative choir experience in which um, the group would not only collaboratively create the lyrics of songs, but they would also create the music, the tunes. Mm. Um, and he did have a, I think one or two professional musicians who would come and he's a drummer. so for example, he would do the drumming and I think he had an accordionist and also uh, somebody who had sung professionally as a way of sort of guiding these individuals. But basically it was about bringing people together and allowing them to create a song about something that they want to to think about, to talk about and and do it in, in a way that draws on each individual's creative abilities. That, sort of that's how they started. Um, and then it's gone on really until the present with these calls out to create different choirs um, involving different groups of people. And more recently, they actually did a, a, a theatrical production Called Zubeda. I was particularly interested in it because uh, I had I had actually known um, Salam for for quite a while. And when he started to talk to me about this, I realized that it was such a such a unique thing to be doing in Cairo. Well, most of the people who came were young people. So it it, it allowed people to talk about the issues of youth you know, how how they are understood or not understood by the older generation, things they thought about their city. Um, in fact, the very first presentation they did was called the Cairo Complaints Choir. I hope
1: there's a list of complaints published somewhere. <laughs>
0: yeah, right, right, exactly. Um, and they, they, you know, they talk in, in fairly elliptical terms about... Um, you know some of the economic and and social problems of the city. Um, of course, uh, issues that are not unique to to Cairo in particular. But uh, they were very they were very clever in the way that they used uh, colloquial language, the way that they used rhyme, the way they referred to uh, you know media, for example, the way they talked about the influence, say for example, of Western politics on their own nation. It was, um, for me, a very fascinating and kind of unique intervention. Um, and then it was also very interesting to me that um, it became so popular that, that Salem Yusri was invited to to do these kind of workshops, you know, abroad in London and Munich and Paris and Berlin. I mean, he's been all over the place and, including um to the u.s and including in many different cities and towns in egypt too
1: Mm. i'd like us to find a way to play in as a song but i need your help in choosing which one
0: (laughs) sure absolutely i think um in the 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 area that you're talking about is the the no comment performance which was one that i i was very lucky to be able to attend in cairo in january of 2012 and this was uh, Held in an, an old sort of warehouse building, um, not too far from central Cairo, and it was a very. This was so. You know, this was a year after the revolution. It was a very exciting time, um, and and kind of in some ways, sort of um, scary time to be in in Cairo as well because things were still sort of unstable. But at this particular, on this particular evening, this no comment performance was the culmination of. Of, uh, I guess about a week or 10 days of practice in which these young people got together to create um, a series of songs. Um, I guess they created just one song um, through that particular workshop. But the night I came, then they sang a variety of other songs as well. And it is basically a revolution narrative, but very clever because they talk about the revolution, but in a way that's making very clever use of rhyme, alliteration, repetition. Um, They really get at both the joy and the the sort of ecstatic moments of the revolution. Um, And then also some of the um, more uh, difficult moments as well. We took it all.
1: We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We're living vaya! So, Caroline, you've kindly offered to to maybe read for us, both in Arabic and in English, some of the lyrics of this song, and that could maybe be a beautiful way to get into some of the analysis that you, you've you hinted at.
0: Maybe just the start of um, the song from the No Comment performance. Um, the beginning of the song reads like this in, in Arabic. And, um, of course, it sounds much more dramatic and lovely as sung by the choir, but I'll I'll let you have a sense of what it sounds like in Arabic, uh, and this is colloquial Egyptian. Eb lil fagar f talat harb waat makuna f iz darb. Kunt ana ma'chi laid shabeen. Wad minhum arab minni. Ali, ya captain, mungkin awla. Qult itfaddal el tab. Tushkar. This uh, translates to just before dawn in talat harb when we were in the heat of the battle i was walking and came across two young men one of them came up to me he said hey captain can i get a light i said sure he said great thanks this so when i translated them i tried to stay very close to the meaning and i didn't add in any rhyming which takes away from the experience but what i thought was important about this entry to this particular song is that he gets at the um camaraderie of the youth, what happened in Talat Harb, the young people, they, you know, they really came together. They recognized their their common experience as young Egyptians. Um, both the warmth of ordinary human interaction in, in Kyrene society, but also the frustration and the and the, the fear and the hope that went into the beginning of that revolution egyptian society is is um, people are extraordinarily um, friendly and warm so very everyday interactions are tend to be very warm and very almost sort of intimate and you know even if you 're a foreigner and you and you can speak arabic you 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 are included in this in a way that people people sort of welcome you into their experience and I thought that was part of what this this choir was getting at here, that even though it was a, a revolutionary situation and a, a moment of danger coming up, he's still talking about the way a group of young men will just come up to each other. They don't know each other, and but they're friendly and they smoke a cigarette together and that kind of thing.
1: Another thing that I really appreciated about your analysis, and clearly your anthropological training comes into the fore, is that you looked at the work of the choir not only as an artwork per se, quite simply, as a, as a social grouping. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you've you interviewed plenty of the participants. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the functions that are participating in the choir. Yes. As for them.
0: Yes, yeah. I, I did interview a number of participants who were involved in different choir workshops. And it was interesting because I, I interviewed very young people who were in their 20s and also um, there were some older participants as well. Um, one person in her seventies. The younger people, particularly right around the revolution, they were so excited and and joyous about the possibilities of the revolution that participating in these um, choirs was just sort of a way of sharing their excitement and their hopes of what may come, but also it was a way of sharing what happened on the street in Tahrir Square, because of course revolutions are never <laughs> simply um, exciting and hopeful they're also violent and and there was violence in Tahrir Square there you know the although the demonstrators were peaceful for the most part, you know in the vast majority of cases, there was um, violence on the part of government security forces. so it was a way of the young people talking about what it was like to be in Tahrir, um, what it was like to have this communal experience with people they knew, people they didn't know, people who were like them, people who they'd never met before. Um, Other people told me that going to those choir project experiences was a way of breaking out of their ordinary kind of social roles. Um, Egypt is a uh, Mm -hmm. class-based society, and so it's true that you know, educated people often tend to mostly socialize with educated people and less educated people, uh, and so on. You know, people people kind of stay within their their social socioeconomic class to a certain extent. So people told me that being in the choir project was rich because it allowed them to meet people they never would have met in, under ordinary circumstances. Um, it allowed secular individuals to meet people who were more who had a more sort of religious orientation. It allowed people to meet people outside of their socioeconomic class, their educational class, and so on. Those were some of the things that people told me.
1: Hmm. So it clearly performs quite quite a profound function yes, for, for the participants.
0: So. I
1: wonder if this is a moment to look at your title specifically, because you just mentioned that the Choir Project is a space in which people can continue with the hope of the revolution still mm-hmm. bringing some kind of positive outcome, and I'm yes. sure these things change with time, how do you see spaces of hope and what mm-hmm. what does culture have to do with with hope and kind of instituting mm-hmm. space for hope within a social context of a place like Cairo?
0: Yeah, well, I can give you a very concrete example from the choir project. for example, one of the um, young men that I interviewed about the choir project um, told me that you know, in the post-revolutionary period in more recent years, he's participated in the Choir Project. And he said it really allowed him to sort of maintain some sense of the jubilance, you know, of the early revolutionary period. You know, and he said that he was disappointed about the revolution. It failed. But when he went to to the the Choir Project, he said, "I, I get back the smell and the spirit of the revolution. Even though we don't talk politics, I get the spirit of freedom. Um, I forget my problems like I'm flying in the air, so it's it's I think that that's one way in in which people uh, can experience hope within this context that they're still getting together with other people they're still creating something new, they get to express themselves freely, they get to um, hear what other people think about their own ideas and creative production. And from what I gathered when I, I spoke to it, the participants, that in itself was um, was really validating for people to get a chance to, to talk, to share, um, to, to create, and to get feedback. Even if it's small, even if it's not creating any huge social change, it's still um, a really profound moment of humor, human interaction.
1: I mean, yeah, that that that's that's clearly incredibly important in a lot of the practices you describe. You cite, I recall, um, one of the one of the critics who described the the young generation of Cairo as the generation that has nothing more left to lose. Yes. And there's a sense in which this kind of creative and and, and cultural participation is the thing you identify as an antidote to that yes. kind of. Let's move on to Another art form, as you do in in your Whirlwind book. The next section in the book is devoted to three visual artists, studio artists. The one that you open with is Hani Rashid, born in 1975. Like quite a few of the creatives that that you bring up, um, not trained as an artist, originally an engineer. Mm -hmm. Another one of those artists who has an active international career mm-hmm. described by one of the critics you cite as a king of pop art which I think is an accolade that we might have to do a little bit to justify <laughs> I've put links to to the portfolio of the artist in uh, the show notes and listeners will be able to go and look at the work at the same time so please do that um so if I could ask you to describe some of the works of Hani Rashid that you that you look at in in the book and try to place them in a context maybe as well of what is happening in the Cairo gallery and visual arts scene.
0: Hani Rashid is, yes, a a very fascinating artist because of some of the things you said. Again, you know, he was originally trained as an engineer, um, but, you know, sort of taught himself how to draw. And then eventually um, was just sort of discovered and mentored by a very well-known Egyptian artist by the name of Muhammad Abla. You know, he came at his his art from a very unorthodox sort of background. And he's a multimedia artist. I mean, he works in painting and printmaking, in wood and plastic and gypsum. And so each one of his um, exhibitions that I've seen, each one of his collections are really quite different. and and, and, and in, a fa- in a fascinating way, he's also um, got, uh, he's also quite influ- influenced by sort of surrealist perspectives as well. One of his early and, and very well-known um, projects was called Toys. So he creates these little figurines of, um, of people, basically, uh, images that might be seen on the the street in everyday life in Cairo. So people on motorcycles, people walking, they're, they're created out of plastic and wood. Um, and um, they're meant to really sort of represent people in ordinary everyday life. Um, you know, whether they're, they're riding in a tuk-tuk, which is a small three-wheeled uh, vehicle that is particularly useful in it crowded city or on uh, or on non-paved street, for example. But uh, but the, the pieces are also, they're, you know, stray cats and so on, and get them to look both so real and ordinary and so shrunken and distorted at the same time. And I, I argue also in my analysis of this that, you know, he's trying to get at the fact that human life in society, um, in cultures, in social systems are are distorted by the systems, the norms that um, rule human behavior. That's part of what he's sort of getting at in these distorted um, figures that he creates. But he's also sort of getting at the way in which um, human beings could be seen as toys that are sort of played with by these larger cultural and social mm. systems or um, norms. It's an, it's an interesting way of thinking about um, human independence and the ways in which human beings think they may be independent and going about life in their own way, but they're really not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, if we, can, if we can figure that out, then I, I guess we, we can put an end to all philosophy and we've solved <laughs> all of the world's problems. But I, I think this is actually a really, really productive space from which to to look at this, this work. We've hinted at some of the different ways in which one can think about creative expressionists political and i'm i'm going to ask you to maybe try to untangle a little bit of a concept that was coined in my understanding by another artist called Ganzier, and mm-hmm. this is the idea of concept pop mm-hmm. as a as a genre or a kind of technique for dealing with with realities mm-hmm. which i think is a very apt way of describing what it is that Hani Rashid does mm-hmm. So there's no really an easy way of asking this, but but, but I, I have to I have to take you to this kind of very very simple understanding of how artistic creation is is political or it isn't. Mm-hmm. There are moments in the book where you refer to um, Theodore Adorno's understanding of committed art, that mm-hmm. is art that's sort of instrumentalized. And I know I've put quite a lot of terms into one, mm-hmm. but if I could ask you to muse a little bit about ways in which which either the body of work that we just talked about from 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 Hani Rashid, mm-hmm. or maybe a series of paintings called uh, Bulldozer,
0: mm-hmm.
1: help us to understand a little bit these these mm-hmm. nuances, it would be fantastic.
0: Yeah, um, I think that one conclusion that I came to in my research about these creators is that that certainly many of them are directing or, or sort of expressing some sort of social critique, um, cultural critique, uh, political critique in their work. But this is really only part of what it is they're trying to do. And, um, and, and while it's certainly interesting to think about, say for example, the way that Hani, hani Rashid is, is, is critiquing aspects of um, life in Cairo It's also really fascinating to think about um, sort of how he comes to create these particular aesthetic forms, um, how he uses color, because he's not just, for example, he's not just offering a critique, he's also in some ways sort of celebrating the, the sort of beauty in the chaos as well. All the color in people's clothes, all the color in the the objects that he the, the cars, the motorcycles, the ordinary sort of street scenes, um, and and to a certain extent, the color is is also related to his interest in surrealism. And you know, often surrealist painting has these very vivid and sort of um, striking, if not even clashing, colors that jolt the viewer. In, in a way, he's, he's using colors in those ways, but in other ways, he's using the colors in, in a way that's pleasurable, in a way that's sort of imagining uh, the beauty of, or celebrating the beauty of the objects that human beings create. Um, he does this perhaps even more so in his project called Gypsum Museum in which he uh, creates these absolutely exquisite images or, or rather models, miniature models of cars, of vehicles, out of gypsum, a wooden gypsum, and they are, they're, they're almost sort of photographic in their accuracy. Mm. And they're rather beautiful, a way of sort of celebrating, you know, what it is that human beings can create when they make machines. But then he'll also have exhibits or little um, parts of the exhibit in which these cars have gotten into a crash for example and so the once beautiful cars are mangled and and destroyed Hmm. and and um, so he's sort of getting at you know also the vulnerability of not only human human creations but human experience itself
1: yeah so I think I mean as much as there isn't any overt political contact in Hani Rashid's work there is a kind of pushback against the restrictions of creativity Mm -hmm. and i think that that brings us reasonably neatly to one of the writers that i thought we could we could speak about Mm -hmm. and that is um, menat Mm al-sami who seems to do exactly that like the, the the thematics of her work are deeply personal but let's introduce menat and and how she maybe sits in a tradition of new writing and new imagination in egyptian literature Manat was uh, born in 1983. Yet another artist, yet another writer who studied a different subject. She was a zoologist, and I think that has a interesting bearing on her creative output. Yes,
0: yes, and she is actually a, a writer that I have met sort of more recently in my career studying writers in the city. Um, indeed, a, a, a very fascinating and and brilliant young woman um, with uh, degrees in zoology and chemistry and um, She's also an Im- immunoparasitology um, expert. And um, in, in fact, I, she is either, and I think she may have finished her PhD in immunoparasitology. Um, so, so fascinating background, um, studying um, the natural world and, and it's, or the biological world, the animal world, insect world in its relationship to human beings. And she's also, wor- you know, worked in writing and journalism. But what was perhaps most fascinating to me about uh, Menatala was that she she began writing flash fiction, which, as as probably many the uh, the audience would know, it, it means very very short stories. Um, you know, uh, flash fiction can even be a sentence or two. It can be fifty words, three hundred words, something like that. And the idea behind it is that the, the flash fiction writer isn't presenting a plot per se, and it's not doing any sort of character development, but rather is really focusing on image and emotion. Um, and so um, Manatala's stories are fascinating because they often um, draw upon ancient Egyptian themes and imagery. One of my favorite stories um, that she wrote uh, basically Uh, takes place as a a woman is walking around an ancient Egyptian site. Mm -hmm. And she suddenly has an experience of sort of, you might think of it as time travel. She becomes uh, a figure from ancient Egyptian history as she's walking around this site. And she experiences what the Egyptian queen Nefertiti would have experienced in a particular point in her time when the temple priests were conspiring against her and her family. Again, it happens in a very, very short period of prose or or a piece of prose with this sort of remarkable economy of words. But she gets at what it may have been like, she imagines what it may have been like for this very powerful woman to feel absolute vulnerability at a particular time, a political, a particular political moment in um, ancient Egyptian history. Um, So it's very evocative, um, very interesting, often focusing on issues of vulnerability and pain, often focusing on women's vulnerability and pain.
1: How can we situate that within a broader literary scene of Cairo and Egypt? And I was very struck, there's a, you you cite some conversation with, with Manat Allah and it struck me, like with the density of words, like human beings and the pain, disappointments, frustrations, catastrophes, melancholy, mm-hmm. revolt against restrictions. I mean, it's a it's a really really dense interest in pain, mm-hmm. a desire to represent and unpack and and picture pain. Mm-hmm. This is just one author we, we we're looking at, but I have a feeling from your descriptions of another writer in the book and from the critics that you cite and and relate to, there's quite a lot of engagement in the literary scene in in this kind of fractured narrative, Mm -hmm. which very often end up with these very painful or at least emotionally charged moments.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, the the larger literary world in Cairo um, is, as I said before, extremely active and extremely experimental. So you have authors who are working, uh, um, again, with the movement between colloquial language and formal language, um, which is... Uh, the basis of, of, of most Arabic literature, the, the formal, the formal literary language. You have people exploring um, historical texts and including um, pieces of historical texts within um, their own um, contemporary writing as a way of sort of getting at the movement between present and past, um, different times in, in the Arabic language when language was has been used differently. Different styles, um, drawing parallels between the past and the present, um, and I think that's one of the things that Menetala does so well is that you know she she brings she imagines um, the past as a way of not making simple connections to parallels in the present, but suggesting ways in which human experience um, continues on certain kinds of lines. Um, Human beings tend to oppress each other. Women have tended to be, in many ways, um, dominated in various societies, not just in Egyptian society or or Arab society. But despite all that, um, women have continued to find ways to be active, to find ways to be creative. Um To revolt and resist, and I think that that's part of what she tries to bring forward, that even in human vulnerability, there is this immense sort of existential strength that people are capable of, um, which continues to move them forward.
1: Mm. I think one of the one of the things I'd like to ask you about is the relationship between the state and the institutions that support these practices. You mentioned it at various points um galleries like Townhouse in Cairo, which is internationally renowned, and um, moments where there was political pressure on the gallery to avoid certain types of political content. Some of the artists you um you addressed in the book referred to censorship in the work. So I wonder whether you could you could address a little bit the state's relationship to all these kind of formalized activities, but also maybe use it also as a way to introduce the final chapter of the book, which looks at informal creativity, particularly street art in, in in Cairo, which I think we know from images of the revolution and thereabouts, is actually an incredibly rich area of, of activity in the city.
0: Yes, um, it's a topic that's um, a, a delicate one. Um, I, I, what what I think I can say about this is, you know, particularly when I first started doing research. Um, in Egypt in the 1990s with authors. Um, You know, a great many of them were supported by um, state prizes for their literature. They worked in the bureaucracy Uh, in the Ministry of Culture in various um, capacities. They may have been editors of literary journals or regular contributors to those journals. So there was a sort of dance between creators and the state. Um, The state supported creativity to a certain extent, Um, but writers also um, would tend to know their own boundaries, um, what could be talked about and what could not be talked about. uh, in order to to be published and to maintain a sort of status vis a vis the state. One example I can think about in particular, this is in the Mubarak era, was an author, Na'amat al-Bahiri, who was very interested in how we can think about and think about female sexuality in a conservative society, in a patriarchal society, and how writers can write about and explore uh, the difficulties, the challenges, the richness of female sexuality without being censored, you know, so because there are certain things that are just not, not publishable. And, and she did get, she did back in the Mubarak era, um, have some issues with censorship for when she wrote about, you um, women's sensuality and desire. Um, in the current context, again, there are still, uh, you know, state galleries, uh, institutions, uh, prizes, which have been written about in, in a great bit of detail by, some, by a, a literary critic called Richard Jacquemont, who, who um, has investigated the relationship between writers and the state in great detail. I think that um, self-censorship is an important aspect of understanding what it is that writers and artists can do um, in Cairo. They n- know quite well, although not perfectly, um, the limits of what they can explore with regard to society and culture um, sort of without getting into trouble.
1: But in the street, is everything everything up for grabs on a, on a well, street wall? Well, I mean,
0: it's, that's... A, that's that question is so interesting because, you know, for most of my 30 years of spending time in Egypt, there really was no street art, no graffiti, nothing. And it was, it was, you know, in the years leading up to the revolution where you started to see a little bit more of it, but mostly during the actual revolution where you saw massive amounts of beautiful murals, um, murals that were painted by professional artists, um, but also murals that um, were painted collaboratively by groups of artists and ordinary people. Spending time in Egypt around in, in 2012 through 2014, some of this work was still up. And some of it was even preserved by, by the government um, as sort of a monument to to the revolution. But the there were two particular street artists that I found... Uh, Really fascinating. They, there's a wall very close to Tahrir Square. It leads into Tahrir Square um, in central Cairo along Mohammed um, Mahmoud Street, which was also the site of a, a very a brutal battle during the revolution. Um, but one artist who goes by the name um, Hima Alaga, um, he he did a uh, a painting that he calls Citizen, and it's um, sort of loosely, sort of structured around the image of um, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, very famous sketch, uh, uh, study of human proportions, and so he so he represents a human being um, with arms outstretched in various positions in the way that Leonardo da Vinci's sketch does. But he puts an an ancient Egyptian um, headdress on on the body. He also represents the body as wounded in various ways, as the body has been wounded. The Egyptian body has been wounded in the revolution and before and after. Um, And he incorporates a number of of symbols from ancient Egyptian um, painting, um, such as a fish, for example. and 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 other aspects of uh, uh, sort of coloring that was uh, that clearly refers to ancient Egyptian aesthetics. Um, so it's kind of a way of sort of thinking about um, the history of of human experience, not just in Egypt but more generally. Um, it's a it's a way of thinking about the beauty of the human body. Again, the vulnerability of the human body. Um, and also sort of bringing in the sort of majesty of the ancient Egyptian past as a way of maybe asking questions about, you know, where, where the, the Egyptian citizen is going, um, you know, going forward after the revolution.
1: Well, that's a, that's a big question on which to end. <laughs> um, Caroline, thank you so much for your time. I just want us to end by asking you about your, your research now and what you're working on next. You, I, I presume you are going to come back to Cairo before long.
0: Oh yes, I'm. I'm. I am very anxious to come back to Cairo. I also have a project. I'm working on um, a new project in Jordan, um, looking at Jordanian and Palestinian women writers, um, mm-hmm. which is a something that hasn't been published uh, about as much. Jordan has a more recent literary sort of uh, scene, um, but a very fascinating one. And one that involves um, writing about the movement of people, whether we're talking about um, the Bedouin who are indigenous to Jordan, the Palestinians who have moved in and out of Jordan because of their refugee status, um, Armenians, and so on. So that's one project I'm working on, but I'm also writing a book with some colleagues here in Milwaukee about the Muslim community here in Milwaukee, which is a more traditional ethnographic anthropological study of um, placemaking, the ways in which Muslims have made a place for themselves in Milwaukee, which is um, a very racially segregated city, uh, one that experiences quite a bit of racial tension. so it's sort of about how how Muslims have found a place in the particular in the particular sort of racial landscape of Milwaukee. And I also talk about a number of artists, uh, Muslim artists in the city, who are making uh, making a place for themselves through creativity as well.
1: I think I noticed on the website of the bio project that you you brought them to to Milwaukee yes. as well. So I guess you you yes. found a way to connect all these interests together. Which, I did. I did. Really yes. <laughs> well, fantastic, um, Caroline. Thank you so much for your time and the conversation and for your work.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for your interest in the book. It was really wonderful to have a chance to talk about it.
1: Creating Spaces of Hope, Young Artists and the New Imagination in Egypt by Caroline Simuchon is published by the American University in Cairo Press. My thanks go to Salam Yussri for his permission for us to use one of the songs from the choir project. I'm Pierre D'Alancer, and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening, and join us next time.